0: Good morning. Uh, Our scripture reading is in Galatians chapter 4, beginning in uh, verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. Man, it is so good to be back here after uh, a little time out of town in Ski country out in Colorado with my brother, and so uh, super uh, refreshed uh, to be back. I thought I wouldn't be coming back to snowflakes falling here uh, in Michigan, Uh, but here here we are. Uh, But refreshed, uh, renewed. Have to give big shout outs to Josh preaching last week and Ken for holding it down while I was out of town, and so super thankful for those guys bringing God's word to you. I mean, we've got a rich and we got a great team of preachers here at Redemption City Church right now. And so I hope you guys have all been enjoying the variety of teachers as much as I have. But uh, it's been really cool. I got to hang out this week also. Pastor Josh and I, a bunch of other pastors in town, work on preaching together. And so, man, I'm just like fired up to be back in uh, the pulpit and doing a, a little preaching here and great to be back in Galatians. We are in Paul's letter to the Galatians. We're in a series uh, we're calling One Gospel for a Divided World. And so um, if you've been following along, all right? Paul is pretty fired up about those who are dividing the church around the Jewish law and practices, right? Those who are insisting that these Galatian Gentile Christians need to follow all the practices Of Torah, they're insisting that these Galatians Christians get circumcised, follow the Jewish kosher diet, keep the Jewish Sabbath and festivals, adhere to the law as a whole to have right standing with God and fellowship with each other. And Paul is having none of that. Right? We have said uh, throughout the series. I've got an equation that sums up Paul's teaching here: Jesus plus anything equals another gospel, and so paul this this theme we see resounding throughout the book uh, wherever people are trying to add anything to jesus right we 've got another gospel, and so Paul has opened his letter uh, passionately, expressing how astonished he is that they are turning to another gospel, he has shared his own uh, life story, the futility of living under the law in chapter one and two. he has rebuked the Galatians for their Foolishness, you foolish galatians he 's argued his case from Old Testament uh, history in Chapter Three, and in Chapter Four, he simply pleads with them not to fall back into slavery to the elementary principles or practices of the law, but remember their redemption, their freedom as sons and daughters. He entreats them, calls them his little children, expresses his longing that Christ would be formed in them. And so we see Paul like the pastor, the preacher just pouring out his heart. I mean he's arguing with them, he's pleading with them. He's 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 bringing in Old Testament theology and history and all of these things to build a case. And then here at the end of chapter 4, he is going to directly address those who want to be under the law. And this is some of the commentators said one of the most tricky texts in the entire book. There's all kinds of nuances and all kinds of time that I got to spend in my study this week, digging into the commentaries. And so if you were really interested in details on this text, and there are so many fascinating... If you're in seminary, if you're in Bible college, and you're like, man, what is Paul talking about? Come talk to me afterwards. We're going to do kind of the 30,000-foot tour this morning because it's a pretty technical piece of text. But I hope... um, You'll come and chat with me if you have any additional questions. I'm just going to do a description, less than dig into all the details, nuances, Old Testament references, allusions, allegory. There's all kinds of great stuff in there. So just to let you know, I'm not going to be able to cover it all this morning uh, and get you out of here by 4 o'clock. So, Anyways, um, I thought one helpful way uh, to start this morning uh, would be with an illustration. We noticed there in verse 1 of of, the, of our text in Galatians 4, uh, Paul has this interesting question here, 421, right? Tell me you who desire to be under the law. And, and I thought I would stop there this morning because you're probably all really excited. Like there's probably a lot of you in the room this morning who just really desire to be under the law. Like you just really think circumcision would be a great thing to do. Like maybe you're gonna schedule your appointment after this. Maybe you're like, yes you know, I'm really excited about that kosher diet. And so that pepperoni pizza is just not going to be able to fly today. Or maybe, you know, Jewish religious festivals, you're like, oh my gosh, you know, Yom Kippur is coming up. Like, how do I prepare myself for it? And we read all of these Jewish laws and practices, and you may be like, you know, I'm not have this super desire to follow law, much less the 613 commandments in the in the uh, Torah. Yeah, somebody counted them. 613 different, anybody really excited about following the 613 commandments in Torah? Okay, okay, I see, so so this is a little bit of a challenge for us culturally, right? While we might not be drawn to Torah observance, our hearts, I want to suggest, are naturally drawn towards creating our own rules and our own laws to establish and reinforce our own self-righteousness. So, so, So stick with me here. I want to give you some illustrations here from uh, Bob Thune's uh, wonderful book, The Gospel-Centered Life. He fleshes out some ways maybe that this desire to be under the law might actually be fleshed out in our lives. If you've been around Redemption City Church, you've heard all this stuff before, and we've been through this Gospel-Centered Life material, but it's so mapped so beautifully here into the book of Galatians. And here are some suggestions here, maybe if you're not drawn to Torah observance specifically. There may be some of you, right, who are like, yeah, dude, Torah observance is awesome, uh, but, but here are a few to try on for size, okay? Um, job righteousness. Anybody? I'm a hard worker, right? God will reward me, right? I'm a good guy. I work hard. You know, God should be able to take care of me. How about family righteousness? Because I, I do things right as a parent, I'm more godly than parents who can't control their kids, Uh, How about theological righteousness? I have good theology. God prefers me over those who have bad theology. How about intellectual righteousness? How's that one for you? Right? I'm better read, more articulate, more culturally savvy than others, which obviously, obviously makes me superior. Uh, How about this one? How about schedule righteousness? I'm self-disciplined and rigorous in my time management which makes me more mature than others around me. Or on the flip side, flexibility righteousness. Anybody here, right, in a world that is busy, I'm flexible, I'm relaxed. I always make time for others. Shame on those who don't. How about mercy, mercy righteousness, I care about the poor and disadvantaged the way everyone should, obviously, right? See, See where I'm going with this here? Or the classic, more classic legalistic righteousness. I don't drink or smoke or chew or go with the girls that do. <laughs> Too many Christians aren't concerned about holiness these days. Come on, can I get an amen? How about financial righteousness? I manage my money wisely and stay out of debt. I'm not like those materialistic Christians who can't control their spending. Come on, any Dave Ramsey folks in here? Right? We can, we can. Hitting a little too close to home. Well, political righteousness here. If you really love God, you'll vote for my candidate, right? We, we're not in a, <laughs> directly in a political cycle, Versus so things have calmed down a little bit. But boy, just a year or two ago, man, there was some really intense uh, political righteousness going on. Uh, tolerance righteousness. I'm open-minded and charitable towards those who don't agree with me. In fact, I'm a lot like Jesus that way. I mean, that's like the ultimate trump card, isn't it? I'm like, Jesus, right? These are just a few examples. You know, perhaps you can think of more. But think of anything that gives you... And then we use them as a way to build up our own self-image. How am I doing as a Christian? How am I doing in my relationship with God? Am I good enough to be accepted into God's family? And Am I good enough to be a part of this kind of church um, community? Or, the flip side... <laughs> the ways we think of how we're better than others, better than uh, those people around us. And we go, well, at least I'm better than those people out there. And so we not, may not resonate with Paul's you know, arguments here against the law and being under the law and being under particularly Jewish Torah, but I want you to see their hearts, right? They're hardwired to law-keeping, self-righteousness, keeping score. And also the shadow side of that is judging, condemning, and excluding others who don't live up to our Standards, and so we come to this text this morning. I think uh, we're with a little bit of a cultural distance there from the pressure. You know, I don't know that there's a lot of Jewish folks in our congregation, and so we come with this pressure of how do we apply this uh, question about being under the law uh, this morning? And so, how does Paul address this desire to be under the law? He does it by telling us a story from the law, right? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and one by the free woman. And so this morning I want to talk about two of those sons, right? A story of Ishmael, the story of Isaac, and we're just going to unpack those two stories and then going to bring some application there. And my aim for this morning's sermon is that we would be freed from our desire, even maybe compulsion, right? To be under the law. And so, so it's a lengthy introduction to the text, but let me pray and jump in. Just two-point sermon today. You know, I'm, I'm breaking the mold here. Just going to be looking at Ishmael and Isaac, and then we'll close. And so, uh, Father, uh, we know that law-keeping, God, comes so naturally to our hearts and creates so much discord among us. Um, would you rescue us from this legalistic mindset and remind us of our identity as your children, that we are children of promise and not children of the law. Would you bring that freedom into our hearts, God, so that we could share it with those in, the midst, in our midst here at this church, but also be just agents of your grace and mercy to those out in the broader culture and whom we have relationships with. So would you come this morning by the power of your spirit, God? Would you open your word to us and bring it home to our hearts? In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Paul addresses those who want to be under the law with a question, right, in verse 21 through 22, right? If we read it here, uh, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. So Paul is like, all right, you guys want to be under the law? Let's go back to the law. Let me tell you a story from the law. Let me tell you about these two sons. And we're going to start with, the story of Ishmael. And so in verse 23, but the son of the slave woman, or the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. And so what does Paul mean, that Ishmael was born according to the flesh? Right? To answer that question, we have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 16. Right. If you remember back from our fall series when we were looking at the life of Abraham, God had promised Abraham an heir, But Sarah, if you'll recall, was unable to have any children, so they decided to take matters into their own hands, right? Enter Sarah, or enter Hagar, Sarah's Egyptian maidservant, and while Sarah couldn't have any children, humanly speaking, Hagar was quite capable of having children, and it was quite common in the ancient Near East to be able to use a servant or a concubine or whatever to have children. Uh, No modern-day fertility treatments, and so you would just use some other person who happened to be around uh, for that very purpose. And they thought, this is going to work perfectly. Hagar will get pregnant. We can just make this child the heir to the promises, and we'll all live happily ever after. Uh, Sure enough, Hagar conceived, but immediately two massive problems emerged, right? Hagar didn't want to go along with the plan. She didn't want to just hand her baby over to Sarah and go, oh yeah, we're all going to live together. It's this happy little love triangle. No, she was like, I'm the one with the baby. I should now be the mistress of this household. And so she was not going to cooperate. And the even bigger problem is that God himself, of course, did not condone this kind of relationship. And so Abraham and Sarah here are attempting to play God. They're trying to fix their situation with their own human effort, their own human power, their own human ability, but they only create more conflict right in their household. So, this being born according to the flesh means that Ishmael was conceived by human effort, by human effort, right? He was conceived not by God's promise, but by Abraham and Sarah's scheming to try to fix things on their own. Are we tracking? So far, we're going to be doing lots of fun Old Testament history lessons and stories here. Uh, Because here's the next phase of the story. Paul goes on then to apply those who wanted this to those who want to be under the law. Okay, so you heard the story of Ishmael and how, you know, Abraham and Sarah thought they could have a baby and fix things their way. Um, Let me apply this to you now. So verse 24, he says, Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and she corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Now, that is a very interesting text here. Paul is unpacking for us uh, this imagery, this illustration, if you will, this allegory here, and he's not using that word strictly and technically uh, in the way that maybe the later church fathers used it. But Paul says these women are two covenants. They represent two different covenants. And what's surprising here is that Paul likens Hagar to the covenant that God made with his people at Mount Sinai, and and Sarah to the covenant God made with Abraham. And this is pretty shocking if you know your Old Testament history, because what's more Jewish than Moses right, and the Jewish law. I mean, there's, there's hardly anything more Jewish than that. So what is Paul saying here? He's not knocking the law of Moses, but those trying to substitute the law for the promise. He's essentially saying that those who are trying to push the law on these Galatian Christians are like Sarah pushing her maidservant on Abraham. It is a merely human attempt to gain acceptance before God. That, that's what's happening here. That's the, that's the illustration that Paul is trying to draw out of this story. Right? The Jewish people have never been able to keep the law. That is why Paul goes far as the present Jerusalem, the present Jews are all, for all practical purposes, still in slavery. The people who got delivered from slavery in Egypt are still, ironically, and in a very strong spiritual sense, still in slavery. And what's so ironic about this, if you follow the argument in Galatians, is that Paul's critics are doubtless claiming they are children of Isaac. They're the people of God's law. They are the true Jerusalem, and perhaps claiming that these Galatian Christians are illegitimate because they're Gentiles, because they're not following the law. And Paul is flipping all of this on its head, saying, you guys are in danger of missing out on the promise like Ishmael Because you're trying to gain your acceptance with God through the law. And and he continues this parallel. And so it's a very, Paul is drawing in this ancient Old Testament story, but he continues in verse 29 here, notice, with some more parallels from this story. So if you're following along in your Bibles there, verse 29, but just as that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him, was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now it's very interesting, right? right? He's gonna go back to Genesis 21 here, 21, where Isaac mocks Ishmael mocks Isaac. When Isaac was weaned, Abraham threw a giant party. I mean, huge celebration, right? It's a it's this wonderful moment. All the promises of God are coming to their fruition. All through this miracle child, and Abraham and Sarah rightly throw a massive party to celebrate. God's fulfillment. And then finally, at age 100, (laughs) Sarah's in her 90s, God finally fulfills his promise and the promised child is there and all of God's promises are going to be fulfilled. But in the story, Ishmael mocks Isaac, right? Showing, his contempt for the great promises of God, the spiritual realities behind what God is doing through Isaac. And Paul argues that those who are trying to push the law on the Galatians are just like Ishmael in persecuting those who are living and celebrating life according to God. The promise, And so you've got these parallels here. Paul is drawing out those that think they're the true children of Israel, those who keep the law, those who are the true Jerusalem. He's like, you guys are actually more like Ishmael, right? You're missing out on the promise and you're trading law for promise. Paul finally closes pretty emphatically with the same imperative found in Genesis 21.10. Cast out the slave woman and her son, Right? He wants these hecklers trying to oppose the law and these Galatian Christians thrown out of the church. Right? Paul is warning his readers about substituting the law for uh, the promise. And I think we need to be vigilant today about this same danger, how easy it is for us to slip back into a legalistic mindset well, it's unlikely you'd fall into the danger of imposing Jewish Torah observance or Sabbath or Jewish religious festivals. How easy for us to start imposing our own laws with pretty devastating consequences. Uh, Richard Lovelace brings this danger home to us today. Uh, he says this. He said, Christians, and I think I have this up on the screen here, Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously, radically insecure persons, much less secure than non-Christians because of the constant bulletins they receive from their Christian environment about the holiness of God, uh, the righteousness they're supposed to have. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce, defensive assertion of their own righteousness and defensive criticism of others. They cling desperately to legal, pharisaical righteousness but envy and jealousy and other sin grow out of their fundamental insecurity. You see what Paul is saying here is if you're living by the law, you're going to be a fundamentally insecure person. Is what I'm doing enough? And you're going to find yourself in one of two positions. You're going to be like, I'm failing. And you're going to find yourself deeply you know, falling off into depression because you're not living up to God's expectations. You're not living up to the expectations of God the people around you, or you're going to be like, man, I'm killing it. And then you're going to look down on others and condemn them. Either way, you're going to be a radically insecure person if your standing before God is based on your performance, on your keeping whatever rules you've happened to establish for yourself. And that's why Paul is so stern with his critics saying, you guys are missing out on the promise by substituting the law. So what is the alternative to living under the law, to this kind of, you know, radically insecure way to do uh, life? Paul contrasts the story of Ishmael with the story of Abraham's other son, who is, right, the story of Isaac, right, the child of the promise. And so as we watch this story unfold, we see Paul here, master storyteller, pastor, theologian, polemicist, uh, you pick the word, he's pulling out all of the, all of the stops in the book of Galatians. Uh, but here he's weaving this story from Genesis 16 and Genesis 21. You have to put those two stories together. And he's doing it all to show us what it means that we're children of the promise and the inheritance that we have. So let me pick this up here in verse 26 to see how Paul contrasts Ishmael then uh, to Isaac. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. You see, the story of Isaac's birth is a miraculous story from start to finish, right? God promised to bless all the families of the earth through Abraham back in Genesis 12. God promised that his blessing would come through Abraham's offspring in Genesis 15. And after the Hagar incident, God clarified that the promise will come through Sarah, even though she is 90 years old. We see that in Genesis 17 and 18, finally, when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah is in her 90s, Isaac is born in chapter 20. And This is a miraculous birth, God supernaturally keeping his promises, and the result is joy, laughter, and a massive celebration. Isaac's miraculous birth ultimately represents God's commitment to bless all the nations of the earth through another miraculous birth, the birth, of course, of Jesus, right? This is why Paul quotes this prophecy from Isaiah 54, 1, right in the middle of our text. In Isaiah's context, Israel is in exile. They've utterly failed to be a blessing to the nations. God has called them to me. But God promises that there is a day coming, right, when God will raise up children for his people, not by natural birth, but by supernatural birth. Isaiah is looking forward to Jesus and all the children He will welcome home for every tribe and language and people and tongue. And this is why Paul contrasts the present Jerusalem with the Jerusalem that is above. The present Jerusalem with its religious establishment crucified Jesus, right, and persecuted the church. But there is a new Jerusalem made up of believers from all over the world. This is the exciting news that Paul reminds these Galatian churches never to forget, never to forget your identity as children of God through Jesus, not through the law. And so Paul is passionate about preserving this gospel. Paul is not bashing the law per se, but any attempts to substitute the law for the promise, right? The natural for the supernatural. He wants to make sure that these Galatian Christians are not tempted to ground their identity in how well they're doing at Torah observance, but who they are in Jesus. Paul wants these Galatian Christians to bask in the freedom of their sonship, the freedom of God's promise for them. And this is very much what Paul wants for us today, this same freedom. And so how would you know if you're living under the law this morning? How would you know if you're under that burden right now? Two uh, diagnostic questions for you, maybe to help dial in here. Where are you devastated by criticism? Right? Where are you? Utterly. Somebody says something to you, and it just totally destroys you. It like gets right at your heart. I mean, it's just like a, a knife to the heart. Like that criticism, you just go, "Oh man!" Like that just totally un- un- undoes me here. Right? These strong responses to criticism show that we're still living under some kind of law instead of resting in our identity as God's sons and daughters. Those sensitive spots in our hearts, those areas where criticism goes right to our hearts, those are the areas where we're probably still living under some kind of law and feeling lots of condemnation when we don't live up to that law. On the flip side, where are you quick to criticize others? Where are you quick to judge? Uh, are you defensive, envious, or jealous of others? This might just reveal some of the insecurity at not keeping whatever law we are living up to, right? We can both go beyond the defensive here, or we can go on the offensive, right, as it relates to the law. Um, we, can, we can be devastated by criticism, or we can become deeply critical of others not living up to our rules and laws. So think through our list from my opening illustration here, um, maybe to bring this home to your own heart. Uh, where are some of the sensitive spots in your heart? I've got a list up there. Um, you guys can look over, right? Is it your job? Maybe that, like, you're super sensitive to criticism. In maybe your family, somebody criticizes your family, and you're like, "Man, whoa!" It's, it's like on theological righteousness. Oh, that's getting a little too close to home here for a, <laughs> for the pastor up front here. You know, maybe it's intellectual righteousness, uh, schedule righteousness, maybe flexibility righteousness, mercy righteousness. You know. Maybe that, that laundry love thing. I, mean, I love this. I think thinking to my wife about this. How much I love to, to be caring for the poor and the hurting and you know, maybe not the other people. Uh, legalistic, right? Financial, political rights. You, you pick the thing. But whatever the Lord's laying in your heart, if you have intense amounts, right? right? If you feel devastated by criticism in those areas, right? You may be still living under the law. If you're easily tempted, right, to criticize others or judge others based on, those things, then we may still be living under the law. Paul wants, and the whole argument of chapter four from beginning to end, that Ken was arguing, that Josh was arguing, and I'm arguing, is all about the reality of who we are in Christ now, is that we're children of God, right? We don't have to prove ourselves, we don't have to establish ourselves. Like, children get into God's Family, not, right, because they do all these great things, right? Your kids are your kids because they're your kids because you love them. Some children are, of course, adopted into the family later on. But once you're God's kids, you're his kids, you don't have to prove it. You don't have to perform it, right? You are welcomed and accepted into God's family. And what Paul wants for us is to live out of that, not live out of this fear of criticism, not live out of this constant weight of the law, but live out of our freedom as sons. I want to close with this Quote by uh, Sinclair Ferguson, which I thought summed up beautifully the teaching here in chapter four, very similar to the quote Ken shared a few weeks back. But he said, The notion that we are children of God, his own sons and daughters, is the mainspring of Christian living. Our sonship to God is the apex of redemption and apex of creation and the goal of redemption. I want you to see that because so often we live out right of our fear or failure. We live out of this desire to perform or pretend that we're we've got our act together and are making it. And what Paul is arguing here in chapter 4 is that it's our sonship that is the mainspring of the Christian life, right? We live out of our identity as God's kids and it's out of that love and out of that sense of of just love by God who he is that we can share God's love with others. Whereas so often, and this is particularly true of religious people, right, church people like us, right, we live out of, right, our own fear of failure. We're living out of these narratives of criticism or judgment or exclusion. And Paul is just totally flipping the script here and calling us to live more deeply out of our identity as God's sons. And so my hope, my prayer, my eager desire is that we would be a church not desiring to be under the law but experiencing the freedom of being sons and daughters living out of that freedom here with each other as brothers and sisters here in God's family uh, for the sake of the world and for the glory of God. So let's pray. Father, as we uh, dig deeper into Paul's teaching here on the law and what it looks like to live to be under the law or tempted to be under the law. God, I pray that even as we gather around this table, uh, God, that it would be a table where we experience uh, the freedom, God, from that condemnation, the freedom from the, the criticism that devastates us, right? Uh, the freedom from the need to judge or condemn others or criticize others, God. But at this table, we build a common. as just sons and daughters of the King, God. Would your spirit, even this morning, uh, be just... Uh, you know, working that sonship into our hearts. God, where we struggle to believe, where we struggle to acknowledge that we are accepted completely because of what Jesus did and we can live out of that love with each other and live that love out into the world. God, I pray that even as we gather around this table, you would encourage our hearts deeply, remind us that we are your sons and daughters. And God, we'd be a church that lives out of the freedom that comes from that. We pray it all in Jesus' name, amen. Tool for our hearts, um, and I would just offer before you to take the time before coming to the table to look over these things and and assess in your own heart where are you uh, yeah, sensitive to criticism or quick to offer it when um, you feel that people don't follow those righteousness uh, ideals of your own heart, and then consider what does God have in that for you? Are you adding things to that, subtracting things away from it? Have you... Um, been curved or bent by our culture um, and to confess that and to allow and bring space uh, for the spirit to convict you of those um, things so each week we read from first corinthians